Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer brings a final message from the Faith Foundation series regarding church governance. Today we start our journey in God's Word at the Book of Romans. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. want to get a head start this morning and find your way through the Bible to Romans chapter 12. We'll be in Romans 12 this morning. This will be our last message on church governance. I know, groan, wipe away those tears. Uh, it's been a fun and exciting journey to discover how the church functions and operates together. We've already spoken about the elders of the church, which we learned that a, a pastor, an elder, and an overseer, they're talking about the exact same Uh, role within the church. An elder is someone who fits the qualifications, right? They're a moral example for the church to follow. Uh, An elder, a pastor is someone who feeds the flock. They protect the flock. An overseer is somebody who provides strategic oversight. They see what the church is supposed to be, and they lead and they guide the church. We last week, we talked about deacons and their role and what they do. We saw that a deacon, uh, diaconus, means someone who labors in the dust. The guys who get their hands dirty, they, they work hard in the church. But they don't just do physical service and activity. Why were they started originally in Acts 6? Because there was disunity in the church. And so deacons are agents of peace within the church to keep church peace and unity and wholeness. They also, we also saw them taking food to the widows. And so they provide individual care and comfort to the people within the church. But today we're going to look at a th- one final role. It's not an office in the church, but it's a role in the church. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is the most important role in the church. It's more important than a, it's more important than a deacon? Yeah, it's more important than a deacon. Is it more important than the pastor? I would say yes. And here's why. The most important role in the church is the church member. Say, church member, isn't that just what all of us are sitting out here in the pews? That's exactly right. A church is no stronger than its members. You see, a church isn't great because you have a great pastor. It's not great because you have a great worship leader. It's not great because you have a great board of deacons, even though we do. A church is mighty and a church is strong because its members individually are strong in the Lord. Members are the ones that do, if you will. If you look at all that happens within the church, members are the ones that do 90% of the work. I mean, really, I mean, you, you, just on a Sunday morning alone, how many collective hours have you spent ministering as, a, as members? You have people in the nursery. You have people who are teaching. You have people who are serving and laboring, people who are welcoming, people out in the parking lot. You members alone have already probably logged in 100 hours just this morning but collectively between you, maybe more. And so member is the most important role in the church in that you're the most numerous. If we're not healthy as members, friends, we're not healthy as a church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, And God, he gave apostles and prophets, which we don't have offices of those today. But he says he gave apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why does God give all these leaders of the church? What is it? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You say, well, who's the saint? Certainly you're not talking about my husband here. You don't know him like I do. Uh, A saint, by the way, is not a special classification of Christian, is it? A saint is just the noun form of sanctified, somebody who has been made righteous and holy before God in Christ. Who is that? That's, That's every believer is a saint. I mean, if Paul can call the Corinthians a saint, uh, friends, y'all are saints. You may not feel like it. You may not look like it. Or, you know, sometimes you may not act like it sometimes, as I don't always. But we are saints. He says that the church leaders, their role is to equip the saints. That's all of us. So that all of us together do the work of the ministry. What's that verse telling us? Every member is a minister. Minister is just someone who serves. Every member is a minister. Every single member of the body of Christ has a particular role that they're intended to play in life. Think of the church like even an ant colony. You know, why is an ant colony mighty? Is it because it has a great queen? No. 
That's not why an ant colony is mighty. In fact, I just watched a, a documentary. I, for some reason, I really enjoy watching these weird insect documentaries about insects fighting each other. And I don't know, it's, it's the, the, the natural world that God created fascinates me. And I saw a documentary about this, this ant colony. And there was this new colony. And there was this, this big, young, robust queen. And, but her, she didn't have that many workers just yet. <clears throat> well, she builds up this colony close to another larger colony. And they got overrun. And the workers from the other colony, they come in and, uh, you know, cover your ears, kids. They chewed off the head of the queen. I mean, it was, it was really a macabre thing. Be glad you're not an insect. But it just goes to show that a colony's health is not determined by the health of the queen. She may be bigger than the other ants. She may be more visible. She may be the only role in the ant colony that you know by name. But what makes an ant colony strong is when all the workers are doing their role and they work together. There's different roles in the colony. You know, yeah, you got your queen, you got a few of those males, and sometimes they're winged and they'll fly off. <clears throat> they're the ant missionaries, and they start colonies together. And uh, you've got the, the larvae, okay? Am I taking you back to biology? Uh, you got these little larvae, these little, little white lumps with mouths, and all they do is you just keep putting food into them, but eventually they grow up and they become the most numerous part of the colony, which is the workers. And so you have all these different parts of the ant colony. And you know what I learned while watching this documentary, too, is that the queen isn't issuing any orders to these ants. Ants are self-programmed. You see, they have instinct. God gave them an instinct, something innate in them, that programming that God put into them. Ants instinctively know, I've been put here to do something. And what the ant does and how they function depend on the needs of the colony and their age and things like that. And so the ants will automatically regulate and they'll help one another. They follow these little pheromone trails of other ants uh, glad we don't do that as humans, but <clears throat> ants do that. They follow these little pheromone trails, and if, they, if one ant is uh, sending off pheromones, if I'm going to get food, another ant he gets a whiff of that and says, oh, I'm going to go get food too. You know, another ant says, hey, there's something attacking the colony here. Uh, then he sends off an attack pheromone. The other ants are like, I'm going to attack. Uh, ants are basically blind. You know, they just follow these trails of one another, but they instinctively desire to work. They want to be productive. God does that with us too. He puts the Holy Spirit inside of us and that is our instinct, our natural desire, our programming is now that I'm a part of this church, what can I do? I wanna do something. And, you know, and God equips each person to serve in that way. And we're gonna see that in Romans chapter 12 here in verses three through eight. We're gonna look at a disciple's mind, their membership, and then finally we're gonna look at their mission. <clears throat> Disciples' mind, we find that in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So when Paul says he's speaking of the grace that God is giving him, in this context, he's talking about spiritual gifting. In Paul's particular case, he has the spiritual gifting and office of an apostle. We don't have apostles today. We already talked about that. If you're an apostle, you were alive during the time of Christ. You better be pretty old. So we don't have apostles today. But uh, Paul was, and because of that, Paul is speaking under divine authority. Paul's saying, God gave me the authority to tell you this is what a church is supposed to look like. And then the first thing he says about a member of the church, by the way, that's what we're talking about here, is that they're supposed to have a certain kind of spirit, a mental attitude. He says, we are not to think of ourselves more highly as individuals than, than of the whole itself. Can that happen in a church where we come to church and we think that the church is about me as an individual? And I start thinking, it, it, the reason this building exists is because there's something that I'm supposed to be getting from this. I mean, it's often how people will come to a church initially. And I get it. You know, a lot of times we come to church, uh, maybe you're an unbeliever, maybe you're a, you know, an immature believer, you're coming to grow, and that's good. Uh, but sometimes immature believers, we can look at church as just another business in the community uh, to meet my needs. You know, when you want groceries, you know, you go down to food fair, maybe you go to Kroger, you go somewhere, and when you go there, you go there because they have the best prices or they have the food that you're looking for. It's something for me. You go, you need to buy something useless or whatever, you know, you go to Walmart. Or you go to some of these places and you go there 
because there's something for you. You need to do a project around the house because your wife put you up to it. So you got to go down to Lowe's or wherever you go to pick up your materials and you bring it home and you start working. But the reason you went there is because you went to get something for me. And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll come to the church with that same spirit and attitude, won't we? What do I get out of this? You know, and that kind of a spirit, when we're just looking about what do I take from the church, is what the Bible calls high-mindedness. I think more highly of myself than of the whole. I think that this church is just for me. Certain symptoms of high-mindedness sometimes are we just saying, well, I just need to be fed. Well, I just need things for my kids. I just need this. I need that. Why are you doing the carpet? What are you doing? You know, and we think that our opinion needs to be consulted on every matter in the church, does it? Careful. When we think that we're so important as an individual, that our opinion is so valuable as an individual, that we should be consulted on every little thing in the church, it's a symptom, friends, of high-mindedness. I'm that important that I should be consulted in all things. So we gotta be very careful here as a church that we are not high-minded. <clears throat> there was someone in the Bible who was high-minded. They talk about him in 3 John 9. See, they had high-minded people in the Old Testament too. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to, oh, wouldn't you like this read of you, who likes to put himself first. He's high-minded. He likes to put himself first, and also he does not acknowledge our authority. High-minded people, by the way, one of the ways they give themselves away is they don't like God-given authority. By the way, the willingness to submit under God-given authority, did you know that's a fruit of the Spirit called meekness? It's a willingness to line up under God-given authority. Hopefully, your wife will hupotasso, right? She will willingly line up under your authority, not because you're smarter or better, but just because that's God's ordained order for the home that he created. In the church, there's certain authority structures that God has created. And when we line up and we work together well, diatrophies wouldn't do that. I mean, he's talking about John, who's an apostle who writes scripture. And diatrophies says, yeah, who are you? Diotrephes thought very highly of himself, more highly than he ought to have. He was high-minded, and he revealed that by not submitting under the authority that God has given to him. Did anybody do that in Jesus' day? Who didn't like to submit under Jesus' authority? Pharisees. Yeah, yeah, they're, all, they're the whipping boys of the New Testament, right? We see them, oh, don't you get on them Pharisees, you know, because they didn't like to submit under Jesus' authority. Instead, they were always judging Jesus. Why aren't your disciples fulfilling our expectations. Why don't they wash their hands three times and do this and then dins and rinse and duck and then, and then genuflect? And why don't they do the ceremonial washings like we do? Why haven't your disciples submitted under our man-made rules? You see, they were high-minded. And Jesus, Jesus had, by the way, Jesus didn't pull any punches with him. He let them have it too. He said in Luke eleven forty-three, he says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. So they had all these, you know, there's certain hierarchy of seating within the synagogue run by the Pharisees, and they all wanted the best seats, you know, closest up, and it showed hierarchy and importance. I'm an important Pharisee. You know, best seats to the Baptist are where? Obviously, it's not the front rows, okay? Nobody, nobody wants to be in striking distance. You get called out by name here too, but, you know, so, you know, back row. But up there... They, you know, they had these, this hierarchy of seating, and they wanted to be seen, and I will be addressed appropriately. I want the, the right title. Uh, that's a reverend doctor to you, okay? They want to be spoken of highly. They wanted to be seated in the right places. They love their greetings. There's certain bows and things that you would do with a Pharisee to show respect and honor, and they demanded that honor and that respect because that's of my high position. They were high-minded, Jesus said, woe to you. By the way, woe is a term reserved for judgment. Where else have you seen that term woe before? Revelation, right? During the tribulation period, these seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments that God rains down upon man, it's a pronunciation. God says, woe, these are woes that come upon you. It's a pronunciation of divine judgment and sorrow and sadness because of the sinful way that you're living. Jesus says, your high-mindedness, I'm gonna pronounce woe upon you. God doesn't think very highly of someone who thinks highly of himself. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't understand who you are in Christ. God says you're valuable. God says that you're precious to him. Okay, so I'm not trying to undermine anybody's self-confidence here. Our confidence comes from what Christ says to be true about us. What I'm trying to say here is that the Bible downplays high-mindedness. When I start thinking of, what do I get out of this? Does this inconvenience me? You know, and we start putting our needs above the needs of the church as a body. As a member, we can't, we can't do that. We've got to allow uh, 
Jesus to be the sole focus of the church and whatever he says is good for the church is what I want for the church. I'm not pushing my own personal agendas in the church because self-centered, self-centeredness, when I just think about how things affect me, who behaves that way? It's the children. It's the larvae in the ant colony, right? Feed me, feed me. What does an ant larvae do? You know, you watch those documentaries, these little white slugs with these mouths, feed me, huh? You know, we're a baby bird in a nest and we're just these little slugs waiting for people to drop food in me, but I produce nothing for the colony. It's just all about me and what do I get from it? That's a, that's a symptom of larval thinking. It's what I did when I was a kid. What you, don't look at me like that. You, look, you did it as a kid too. My parents, we would have a birthday, right? And so my mom would bake a cake in one of these beat up old, you know, <laughs> aluminum pans that got drugged behind a truck, it looks like. It's just, she's had it and her grandma had it. And, and she makes these cakes. And the way my mom made cakes, the outside, like the middle of it was really tall, but the outside edges around the pan were always really short. And the way my mom cut it, the biggest pieces were always in the middle. And the way she frosted it, she'd put the frosting in the middle first and kind of sweep it out to the outside edge. So the outside edges had very thin frosting. And then she'd put those little Wilton candy letters in the middle. Remember those? You know, happy birthday. You know, it tastes like nothing, but you, you fight for those pieces as kids. Happy birthday. And so as a kid, nobody, my, my mom had cut the cake, but <clears throat> I was examining the cake with the mental acuity of a jaguar, right, examining its prey. And I identified with using a complex algorithm that children use, you know, it can't be on the outside edge. It's got to be the thick frosting. It's got to have the most lettering. And I assessed mathematically which is the best piece of that piece of cake because that's how kids think. And with the skill of a seasoned archaeologist, I began to use these forks and knives to excavate the very center piece of the cake. You know, it looked like some old man in the hills without teeth. You know, this cake, this big piece. And that was for me. And my dad sees this and he's like, what are you doing? I was pretty surprised at his surprise. I was like, what? It's the, obviously and clearly, mathematically speaking, the best piece of cake in the pan. Why wouldn't I take this one? And, and I told, I remember, to my shame, I remember telling him these exact words. I said, that's the best piece of cake in the pan. Somebody's got to eat it. It might as well be me. <laughs> now to a child, that is, that is airtight logic, isn't it? I mean, that, how, do you, how do you argue with that reasoning, you know, as a child? But my dad was so disappointed. By the way, he didn't let me have that cake. He gave me one of those corner pieces that are stumpy and has no frosting and not a single, not an H, A, or P from the happy birthday. Nothing. But it taught me a sound lesson that I don't just approach life with how does this benefit me? How does this improve me? I was high-minded as a child, and that's how children are born into this world. Children are born into this world high-minded. I think highly of myself. My needs come first. But what, is, what does Paul say here we should be instead in Romans 12? <clears throat> instead, we should have sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He's talking about spiritual gifts. God has assigned to you certain giftings, but in that gifting, don't think highly of, more highly of yourself than you ought to. Instead, we should look at ourselves. He uses the term soberly. We should be sober. If a person is sober, what does that mean? He's not drunk. When you're drunk, does that affect your thinking? You know, some guy, he's out at the bar, he's getting drunk or whatever, and he sees some guy staring at him. He's like, oh, that guy wants to fight me. Oh, I know he wants to fight. What, brother? What? And he's just watching the TV, okay? He's watching the game. He's eating some peanuts. He's watching the basketball game. But when you're drunk, you don't think clearly. You think everything is about you, you know, and you want to fight this guy. Or, you know, you see, some, you see some girl in the bar, and you think she's so beautiful. It's because you're drunk, okay? She's not as pretty as you think she is. Sorry, but I mean, that's, that's how it is. When you're sober, you can't see anybody clearly and you think everybody's about you. You think everybody's in love with you and you think everybody wants to fight you. It's all about you, 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 you. And when you're drunk, that's, that's how you will behave. When we're sober, you don't act that way. You see what she really looks like and you realize, oh, that guy, oh, there's a game on. He's watching the game. You're thinking clearly. You, you don't think the whole world is about you and not everybody wants to fall in love with you or fight you. It's you're sober, Right? And so Paul is saying that we should have sober judgment. Understand who you are in Christ. Enjoy that, but don't 
Ever let yourself think that you're more important than the church as a whole? In fact, that's what church unity is. Jesus' prayer in John 17 was that we might be one, that we start thinking of ourselves as a unit, as a body, and what's best for the body, not just what's best for me. Why did you guys do that as a church? You know that affects me, right? Friends, that's a symptom of high-mindedness, that if I'm ever inconvenienced, that's a bad thing. That should never happen. Instead of looking at the greater whole, yeah, this is a minor inconvenience for you, but look what it's allowing us to do in ministry over here. So as members, we need to make sure that we're not high-minded, that we think soberly, and we look at the church as a whole, what's good for the church as a whole, not just how does that affect me? Because that's high-minded. That's diatrophies, that's larval thinking, okay? Instead, we need to be asking the question, not what pleases me, but does this please Jesus? And when that does, when you can think of those phrases, you know, what, how does this please Jesus? You've now exited larval stage, and you're now a true worker. You're now thinking, what's good for the greater whole? So let's look now at a disciple's membership. Now, I've had folks talk to me. We talk about church membership. People have a lot of weird ideas about it. We had a guy in one of my old churches. Um, they, were, they started coming to church, and so Amber and I say, hey, you know what? We want to come visit you guys. And he panicked. <laughs> I don't know what his church background was, but he panicked. And he told his wife to tell my wife to tell me, okay, they can come over for dinner, but just tell them we're not giving more than $50 a month. You know? and he, the guy was stressing out that I was going to put him under some kind of laws or something. Friends, when I come and visit you, can I just tell you, I don't know what you give. I'm grateful that you give, but I don't know what you give, and I don't want to know. If you can't give it cheerfully because you want to honor God with it, then, then you don't give, and God will take care of us using other people. But, you know, so that's not what it's about. Um, does the Bible speak of church membership? Yes, it does. Some people are like, oh, church members, it's not even mentioned in the Bible. Okay, you look on the screen. Three times in that brief passage of two verses, do you see the word member anywhere? I mean, it's really hard to pick out. <laughs> Anybody see those bright, bold yellow letters? Uh, let's read that together. The Bible does talk about church membership. He says, for as in one body, what's a body? Okay, it's the church. It's the body of Christ. He says, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is the primary term that the Bible uses to describe what we are as a church. We are a body. We are a body of Christ because in a body, you have to have a head, but who's the head? Is that the pastor? No, don't shake, shake your head there. The pastor's not the head of the church. Who is it? I heard the right answer out there. It's Jesus. The Bible describes Jesus several occasions. Jesus is the head of the church. What's a head supposed to do? The head makes all the decisions. The head is the brain. By the way, your entire body is a slave to your brain. Did you, you ever think of it like that? Your brain has certain ideas of things that it wants to do, okay? Your brain, uh, we see some donuts out in the corner. What do we do? Our brain goes, boy, I'd like those donuts. And so your brain starts sending signals through your central nervous system to the rest of your body. Move, leg, you know? And so we're, you know, and we start going over and we're like, let that hand move over and bring that up. Okay, the brain sends a signal. Open that mouth, you know, chew with your mouth closed, you know? And that's what our brain does. The entire body serves the whims and the desires of the head. That's what a church does. The church has one head and we are to serve not our own desires, but whose? The head. Now, does the church have a central nervous system that connects all of us together? It's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about for one, by one spirit we are baptized into, what does he call us? One body. There's that term again. So the Holy Spirit baptizes, immerses us into one body, and he indwells us permanently now. And so the Holy Spirit is taking signals from the head, Christ, and he's sending it out to each one of us. There's a little nerve of the Holy Spirit going out to each of you as a body part. And when Jesus wants something done, he goes, right? And he activates each one of us using our spiritual gift so that it meets the needs and the desires of the head, which is not your pastor, but it's God. It's Christ. Now, how do we determine what that is? That's pretty clear. Jesus gave us marching orders. And through the central nervous system of the Holy Spirit, we take these marching orders, and each one of us have a desire to do something. That's what a member does. But he says here that we don't all have the same function, do we? He says, so there's parts that aren't alike. Just because we're all members of Christ doesn't mean we think and act and serve the same way. 
I mean, imagine if instead of uh, two hands and two feet, you had uh, four hands. Anybody want to run a marathon with four hands? Can you imagine what that would feel like? I mean, that'd be tough. I can't run a marathon with two feet, but two hands, that'd be, that'd be rough. Or worse yet, imagine if you had four feet. I mean, you can't, you know, Mike, you can't use chopsticks using your hands. Imagine trying your, your feet, you know, eat that, you know, those dumplings with uh, your feet. It, it's not going to work. So there's different body parts. We don't function in the same way. And that's okay. And by the way, there's no vestigial organs in the body of Christ. You guys remember getting taught that in school, that we have vestigial organs and things like that, you know, these useless body parts that are along for the ride, but they don't do anything. It's a Darwinian concept that, there, that there's parts of our body that just don't matter. My, my belief is this. If they're in our bodies, because it matters, Jesus put it there for a reason, and if we don't understand what it does, it doesn't mean it's vestigial. It means that science hasn't caught up. You know, I was taught as a kid that your appendix is a vestigial organ. You know what I learned as an adult? It actually regulates your gut biome, right? The good and bad bacteria and things like that. So just because we haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean God's wrong, okay? But the, there's no vestigial organs in the body of Christ, things that are just along for the ride. I don't know what that organ does, but we feed it, we take care of it, we do things for it, but he doesn't do anything. He just, he's just kind of here. He's just with us. There's none of that in the body of Christ. Every body part is a member. So a member, just think of this, a member is a body part. Every body part in your body, Lord willing, does something. You got a tongue, it does something. You've got a, a kidney, it does something. You've got invisible parts that you can't even explain. You know, I mean, do you really know what a spleen still does? You, you guys failed anatomy like I did. So we don't even know what a spleen does. Do you want to do without your spleen? You don't know what it is. You don't know what it does. Uh, you couldn't even point it out on your body where it is. You don't want to do without it. And so there's different body parts in the body, but they all do something vital. They all do something important. Okay? And so... Every person in the church is a body part, and that's where we get the term a member of the church. It's not like a member of Sam's Club or a member of a country club. The ter the ch when the church uses the term member, we're speaking of it biblically. Biblically, a member is a body part. And so what a member is, is a Christian who says, I want to identify with that church body. I want to, I'm an ear, okay? Let's just say I'm an ear in the body of Christ. I want to attach my ear to that body and perform that function within that body. Biblically speaking, that's what a member is. You're a body part, and you've chosen to add that body part to this particular church body and to function in that way. Okay, so a membership is a commitment to be a part of a church to perform a function. Biblically, that's what we're talking about. So let me just pause here and just say something. This, and let me say this with all the love I can muster up in my heart. There's a lot of Christians out there who have a false view of what church membership is. Membership in a church is not an honorary title. Church membership is a function we perform. Look what he says. We are all, our body has many members, body parts, right? And members do not all have the same, what term does he use? Function. So every body part has a function. It has a purpose. It's supposed to be doing something. So sometimes I'll hear people say, and they mean it well because they've been taught this way somehow, sometime that oh they'll say oh yeah Johnny you'll have to meet him someday uh, he moved away 25 years ago but he's a member of Unity Baptist Church I say really where does he live San Francisco okay now friends I had my appendix removed in like 2015 I don't say I part of me lives here in Ashland but part of me lives in Bangkok where it got taken out Right? Because that body part is removed from there. It's no longer performing the function. It's not attached to me. I wouldn't call that a member of my body. Friends, if you are not here present in a church performing the function that a believer performs in a church, biblically speaking, you are not a member of this church. Friends, I say that with all the love of my heart, and I'll explain why. Look on the screen yourself. What does a member do? It functions. A member functions. If we don't worry that our members function, that they're attending regularly, that they are serving regularly, that they are giving regularly, and then, but then we allow them to come in on a business meeting, determine the whole future of the church, what pastors we bring in, the deacons we bring in, uh, whether or not we, uh, you know, we build out or we do some major decision. You got folks who are completely uncommitted, uninvolved, unconcerned, because they're not here, and you're giving them the, the authority as a church to decide the direction of the church. 
Is that healthy? Friends, I'm telling you right now, it's not healthy. It's not biblical anyway. You look on the screen here. It, biblically speaking, a member is a body part. A member is functioning within the body. Even in our own church bylaws, it understands that a member does something. A member faithfully comes to church. That doesn't mean we do attendance, and if you don't come for a couple weeks, go, Rachel, where you been? You know, oh, you're not a member anymore. You didn't come for the last two weeks. We're not a bully like that, okay? We go, take your Disney vacation, take your wife out on a Disney cruise. Shoot, you can, you can be Rick Muster and go down to Florida once in a while and hang out and still come back. Hey, we're not talking about those kinds of circumstances, but someone who never comes, they, they live in a different place, they attend another church, they don't give, they don't serve. They, biblically, they're not functioning as a member of the church. So no matter what a church filing cabinet might say, Biblically, they're not a member. And frankly, friends, we don't do that person any favors by calling them a member and giving them a false sense of security and rightness with God when they're not functioning as a body part. Sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're one of these and you're a member of the church, but you don't come, you don't give, you don't serve, you don't do anything, you're just, you're disconnected, but you're a name on a roll, one of our deacons will contact you privately, humbly, and quietly and just be like, hey, just want to see how you're doing. You know, we see you don't come anymore, you don't give, you don't serve, you don't, you know. How are you doing? What's, is there anything wrong? Is there things we need to know about? We're going to have a loving conversation with you. If you persist in this way, friends, you're not going to be a member of the church. Why? Because that's what a member is. They're connected to the body. They're come. They pres they're present. They give because body parts give. Body parts do things. Even my appendix, it gives good bacteria to the rest of my body. It performs a function. It does a role. Now, some roles are bigger than others. My hands are very visible. You can't see what my gallbladder is doing. Well, my gallbladder is gone too. I don't know. I don't know what it's doing either. So I'm in trouble. I'm just losing. I'm dying slowly. Okay, one body part at a time. I'm not sure what's next on God's list. But, but every member, biblically speaking, is a functioning body part. There are extenuating circumstances. Friends, we're not criticizing those of you who are at home and you're watching because you're a shut-in. We're not criticizing though, folks. You know, we can't all be, you know, Miss Eula, who's, you know, I don't even know how old our sister is, but she acts like she's 30, you know. Just got a clean bill of health too. We praise God for that. But, you know, we're not all that. And so some of us, we have to stay home and that's okay. We're not criticizing. Nobody's pulling anybody's church membership because you cannot be here. We're talking about people who will not come. You just got better things to do than, than to mess with church. And in very loving way, friends, let me say this too. If you're one of these, you're watching live today, uh, you could be at church, but you just chose, you know what, I want to sleep in. I kind of want to do my own thing. And then somebody asks you, why don't you come to church anymore? You say, COVID. I understand. If you aren't going to anything else, I totally get it. If you don't go to work, you're not going to Walmart, you're not going to a crowded concert and plays and musicals and band concerts and events and activities, I understand why you're not at church. But friends, all I'm asking is this, be consistent. If you're going to work, you're going to Walmart, you're going to concerts, just make sure that God isn't the only thing you're skipping just be consistent. Don't say, oh, I go to concerts, I go to this, I go, my entire life is completely normal, but I don't come to church because of COVID. Friends, be honest with yourself why you're not really here, okay? A member is a functioning part of the body, which means they're present within the body, like Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake, don't turn your back on, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. Some people do it, don't you be like them, but gather all the more as you see the day approaching, Okay? So as a member, we've got to be physically present in a body. And each one of us has to determine why we're not present. Am I on vacation? You know, am I sick? We understand. But we've just got to be careful. <clears throat> By the way, this is also why church hopping is so unhealthy. You're never attached to a body, are you? Can you imagine waking up? I mean, most of you have, grown, most of you have two arms. You know, okay, I, I'm looking around. I see a lot of two-armed people here today. Can you imagine just waking up tomorrow morning, you know, I go, I go to stretch, and I'm like, Aah! you know, I'm missing an arm. You know, that'd be pretty disturbing. And so I, you know, you ever try to tie your shoes with one arm? You ever try clapping with one hand? You know, it doesn't work real well. And so I go out in the living room, and I see my wife, and she's doing her quiet time on the couch like she does every morning. She's got her coffee. She's got her little phone open to, like, mountains and birds flying and singing and what she does, uh, you know. And I look out there on the couch, and I see she's got three arms. I said, man, what do you got three arms? I've got one arm. What do you got three arms for? He says, I don't know. I just woke up this morning, and I had three arms. And so now I can do my quiet time and the vacuuming and, you know, and call my sister at the same time. It's great. I love having three arms. 
I say, well, I've only got one arm. You see, we grow very attached to these body parts, and when we grow to depend on them and then they're not there, that would ruin my week, you know, if I, grew, I woke up one day and my arm's not there. Okay, that's, that's a bad thing. I, I grew dependent upon that. Same thing in a church. Friends, you're an arm in the body of Christ. You perform a function in the body of Christ. We grow to depend upon you and what you bring to the church. And when you just don't show, friends, your church suffers like a one-armed man. We need you here. We need you attached. That's why we're committed. We don't just bounce around from church to church going, well, I'm doing my church thing. No, doing your church thing isn't attending services. Let me say this briefly. I say briefly. Pastors lie every time they say briefly, right? We need to stop thinking of the church as a building and a service. A church, biblically speaking, is a people and a mission. A church isn't a building and it's not a service. A church is a people and a church is a mission. It's so church doesn't always have to look the same. You go to Nairobi, you go to China, you go to America, you know, you go to the Bronx. Church can all look differently because it's not about a building or a service. It's about a people with a mission. And so we just got to be careful when we're talking about church. We're not just talking about being faithful and committed to attending a service. That is not God's measure of spirituality. He wants to know if you look like him. Do you, do you possess the fruit of the Spirit? Anyhow, let's move on. <clears throat> so let's look at the disciples' mission in verses 6 through 8. The other thing that Romans 12 says is that, members, we don't all serve in the same way, and we should not expect them to. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what he's showing here, he's listing some spiritual gifts, by the way. This is not a complete list. And frankly, I'm of the belief that there is no compendium of all the different spiritual gifting that's out there. The reason is, if there's four passages in the Bible if you want to study spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. None of them have the same listing of gifts. Why? because the most important thing about spiritual gifts is not trying to necessarily name tag yourself. I am an evangelist. I'm a prophet. I'm a teacher. Uh, the most important thing is that you use your gift. Serve God. That's the real thrust and focus, and then it always ends with an admonition of love. So study those gifts for yourself, but here he mentions several of the different gifts, okay? But the most important thing he says about this is what? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Okay, So we've got to be careful that, uh, let's say I'm passionate about children's ministry. Oh, I'm passionate about children's ministry. If we're not careful, we can look around at everybody not in children's ministry. And can we look down on them? Don't you know their children are the, the, the church of the future? They're everything. Why don't you have a passion for the children? Because they're not gifted like that. It's okay. Maybe you're one of these guys, you, after a church fellowship, you're stacking chairs, and you're like, you know, it's always me and, and Charlie and, and three other guys that are stacking chairs. Why isn't the whole church stacking chairs? Well, friends, their gifting, they may be operating their gifting in a different way. Maybe, well, they're just over there talking to these ladies. Maybe they're praying with them and using the gift of mercy. And so this is a call not to be high-minded and think that because God has gifted me a certain way that everybody should believe as strongly in that ministry as I do. We all serve it differently. It's okay. It's okay that we're different people. The important thing is, though, that we're using those gifts. By the way, people often ask, you know, how do I know the spiritual gifting that I have? Well, you can take spiritual gift inventories. That can be fun and healthy. Uh, I think it gives you a rough idea of places to begin serving. So that's not a bad place to begin. But really, ask yourself a few questions. One, if somebody were to ask you this question, what is the most important need at Unity Baptist Church? Your answer to that question is likely pointing you towards your gifting. Why? Because God, through that Holy Spirit central nervous system, has brought that to your attention. This needs to be done. Right? Talking to uh, Cindy Jackson just the other day and she, at our work day, and she's like, I just saw this. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. What'd she end up doing at work day? She started taking care of that, thing, that, that need. I just thought that was so funny how God did that. Talking to Jamie Lester, same kind of thing. Hey, we've just been saying this needs to be done. This needs to be done guess what they're doing over at Workday? That's what they did. Why? Because that's something that God put on their heart. When you look at something in the church that's not being done the way it should be, or it's not being done healthy enough, it needs, uh, 
it needs to be a little more healthy, usually that's God motivating you to be a part of the solution. There's a reason God helped you notice it and not somebody else. He wants you to be part of that solution. So next time you think about something, why don't we do this in church? Bing! <laughs> Maybe God is motivating me to be a part of that. He brought it to my attention. He gave me a hunger, a desire for it. I see a need here. That's usually one of the greatest indicators. Other indicators are things like you enjoy it, or, or at least have a deep sense of satisfaction. I don't think anybody enjoys shoveling mulch, you know, but you have a sense of satisfaction. You're like, that needed to be done, you know? Uh, you're good at what that is. It benefits people. They comment on it to you. That's a good indication of your gifting. So, but in, and so 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 23, though, gives us a warning. He says, the eye, body part, right? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again of the head to the feet that I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. Can I just park there for a second and say, friends, every one of you has a spiritual gift and every one of you has a ministry and every one of those ministries are equally valuable. You need to hear that. I think especially our servants, our less visible body parts, you know, there are our, our kidneys and our livers and our, our hearts and they're invisible. You don't see it. Friends, you need to hear that. Those of you who are servants, I ran into somebody here in the church, didn't even realize service was a spiritual gifting. It doesn't matter if you're pouring Kool-Aid for a kid in VBS, God sees it. In fact, he even specifically says, you can't give away a glass of cold water in the name of a disciple without a reward. Does God see when I pour Kool-Aid for a little kid at VBS? Yes, he does, and he rewards you for it. What about someone, oh, I'm just up here in the choir, all I'm doing is singing. Are you though? Are you helping lead worship? Are you serving God and God sees it and he rewards you? I don't know. I was just out here, you know, uh, I was out there talking to Jackson and his dad the other day, and they're just out there with, with leaves. They're on the back lot, like places you never go, like forgotten corners. Like, is that even our church property? Jackson was out there, weren't you, buddy? And they were, they were dealing with leaves and all that kind of stuff, and nobody sees what they did, and they weren't looking for attention. But you know what? They were doing it, and they were working hard. You know what? God sees, and God rewards that behavior. Your service in this church, whether it's in the nursery or whether you're working with little children to teach them, whether you're in Awanas or you're in the choir, it's equally as important as to what I'm doing right here, right now in preaching. I'm just one role in the ant colony. I'm a single ant. That's all I'm, I'm a little ant. But friends, when we come together as a church and we take that role, those roles seriously, we become mighty in Christ, mighty to the points where Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And what does he say? And the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. Why? Because we're a church, we're a body, we're a people, we're a colony, that when we work together and we're all performing our functions, Jesus says, even the gates of hell can't prevail against it. That's what a church is. That's when a church is mighty, is when every individual member understands the importance of those little things that you do. It's all important to God. He sees it and he rewards it. But what you do is equally valuable to what I'm doing right now. But Paul tells them that we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. A, a spiritual gift is a gift is, that God gives you to give away to others, right? It's not just for your personal benefit. God makes you a servant to do something for others. He makes you a teacher for others. He makes you merciful to give it to others. So if you have a spiritual gift, the command here is use it. If you're a member of the church, but you have no functioning purpose in this church, friends, you have yet to find the most fulfilling part of your life. It's fulfilling to know that you're a part of this eternal work that God is doing at Unity Baptist Church or whatever church you're a part of. Briefly, let's end with this. I said briefly, didn't I? <laughs> you know that's a lie already. Seriously, we will be done quick. A spiritual gift is no good unless you're using it. He mentions seven different gifts here, prophecy, service, teaching, etc. Prophecy, by the way, when he's talking about prophecy as a gift rather than as an office, we're not talking about foretelling, but forthtelling. It's Prophecy, biblically speaking, is just the proclamation of divine truth. Every time we preach the word of God, in a very real sense, we are prophesying. And when I teach Daniel in Revelation, we're actually telling the future. But hear this, God is no longer giving man immediate real-time prophecies. There's no more immediate revelation. Nobody gets to go to somebody and say, God told me this, unless you're quoting scripture. We've got to be careful. We're not attributing to ourselves the role of prophet. Okay, 
When you say God told me, you're claiming divine inspiration and infallibility. So I'm sensing maybe God is leading me to share something with you. Let's be careful with our terms. So prophecy. He also says here, uh, he mentions the gift of serving. That's the physical acts that we do for the church. He mentions um, teaching, you know, someone who talks, who helps people to arrive at the conclusions of what God's word says. Exhortation is encouragement. Um, he says there is one who contributes, okay? We have people who have a special spiritual gift of being able to handle money so well that they're gifted in giving. Did you know that? Some of you are just so good at giving that you don't, you're like, I don't just give a tithe. I give every, I don't give what I must. I give what I can. And in every way I can, because I use my money well. We have someone in this church who does that too. Her name is Dana. And she'll be mad that I just mentioned her name even. Um, she's good with money, friends. And I know sometimes in the church we can get a little bit frustrated that she holds us to a budget. I call Dana our ministry enabler. I do. If she wasn't here, friends, do you know I probably wouldn't be here? And I mean that with all my heart. If she wasn't here, we would be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. We got to have people operating in that gifting saying, whoa, I know what you'd like to do, but hmm, let me look over here. There's no money there, okay? And so she, it looks like she's this like restrictive ogre. Ah, stop it. She's performing her spiritual gift in the church, and we bless God for that, that she limits what we can do with money so that we now have money, not just for lavish parties, but for evangelism for discipleship and accomplishing the purpose of the church. And so next time you see Dana, thank her for her role, okay? She's that invisible part that gets a lot of grief sometimes. But friends, she's indispensable. As well as the rest of you who give generously like that. Those of you on our finance committee, we thank God for you guys. Um, some people are gifted in different ways. He says those who uh, lead, lead with zeal. Be passionate about what God is leading you to do. What's a leader? A leader is somebody who sees things that other people don't see. A leader is somebody who knows where we should be, who knows where we should be going, and he knows how to instruct others, to point others, and encourage them toward that destination. That's what a leader does. If we don't have a leader in an ant colony, can that be a problem? Okay. Uh, when, we, when we follow bad leadership or have no leadership at all, I've got a video here for you. This is going to be fun. Um, eventually... And uh, what you're going to see here on this video is, if it, if it doesn't, if it actually works, you know, I may have put out a bad video link in there. What you're going to see on this video is a group, is a colony of ants, and they're marching around in what is called in the science world a death spiral, okay? A death spiral is when ants, and if, if this video are up here, use your imaginations. Everybody close your eyes and imagine, okay? Um, it's a bunch of ants, and this is an actual phenomena that happens. You got all these ants, and it's just this giant colony of thousands of ants marching in a circle. It's the ant world equivalent of a dog chasing its tail, okay? And it's just, it's just these ants, and they're just marching in a circle, thousands of them, and they'll just keep doing this forever and ever. Do you know they'll do that until they die? Death spirals can kill off entire colonies of ants. It's a really bizarre phenomenon. You don't see it here. Look it up on YouTube. It's really crazy. So you got this bizarre colony of ants here, and that's because ants are blind, functionally blind. They move, they operate by pheromones, and they, means they simply follow the ant in front of them. So they're just, you know, they're, this ant's doing this, so I'm going to do this, you know? So you get this giant death spiral going on, all these ants, and they're marching fast too. They're like, woo, boy, we're getting a lot done here. Where are we going, Jimmy? I have no idea yet, but we'll find out. Let's see what Johnny's doing. I'm just following Johnny. Johnny, why are, you, why are you moving up there? Oh, I have no idea, because David's up there. Okay, David knows what he's doing. He's been here a long time, so David is going. We're, whew, whew. we're getting tired here, but we're going to keep marching in this death spiral because somebody ahead of me was doing that too. So obviously it's important, or we would not be doing this, right? You know what I'm talking about. So, and we just, we just keep marching in this circle, and we feel very productive, right? Because we feel very active, and so activity is necessarily production. Is that what I'm right? So don't, don't make me keep running here. Just get this point. We're tired up here, isn't it? Supposed to be tired. That's what a death spiral is in a church, though. It's when we just keep following the ant in front of us. Why are you doing this? I don't know. Kevin said it was a great way to go. Kevin, why are you doing that? I don't know, because this pastor said it was right. Pastor, why did you do that? I don't know. The pastor in front of me said it was the right thing to do. Why did you do that? I don't know. And the church ends up in a death spiral. How do we get those ants out of a death spiral? You need a leader. Someone who can take a bird's eye view. You and I on YouTube, we can see what's going on. We're like, silly ants. You're following each other in a circle and you're gonna die. 
a leader in the church, you don't need a ton of them, but you do need leaders. They are the people who can get that magnified YouTube zoomed out view of things and they can go, hey, you're in a death spiral. You're just following each other and you don't even know why. You don't know why you do what you do. But here's what the Bible says we're supposed to do as a church. So let's go ahead and let's get out of this death spiral and let's start doing some things that are productive and living, okay? That's what a leader does. And then he mentions mercy. You know, you're the first person to arrive at a house when they're sick. You bring casseroles to people. Uh, you're part of our encouragement ministry of the church, and we thank God for each one of you guys, okay? So every one of these roles here are important. Even our children's church is important, and obviously we've worn them out, so here they are. Uh, we're going to go ahead and stop here, okay? But understand this. The role that you face in, that you serve in a church is equally valuable to every other role. And it's equally important. If you're a member of this church, friend, it means that you're a body part in the body of Christ. You've chosen to attach yourself to this body, to be physically present with this body, to perform your function in this body. That's what a church member is. And we're only as strong as every individual member that understands that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this message. And it can be difficult to study what a member is because we're not talking about some guy out there who went to seminary and he's the pastor. We're not talking about some guys who are deacons and they serve in some role. We're talking about us. This is personal, Lord. I pray that each one of us would understand what a member is, that it is a body part, a functioning, attached member to the body of Christ who has a specially unique, divinely gifted role to do something. God, I pray that each one here would find their fulfillment and their enjoyment and their just their purpose of living, not just to be working a nine to five and having fun on the weekends, but God, being a part of something eternal that would long outlast this brief temporary life that you've given us. Lord, may we live for eternal things and set our mind and our hearts on eternity and not just the here and now. Ask us in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, Click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.